G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined, as always, by my lovely co-host, Ardeet. Today is Tuesday, the 20... No, today's not Tuesday. No, it's not. It's Thursday, <laughs> a banana. <laughs> Today is Thursday, the 29th of February. Uh, I was more focused on the date because, of course, today is uh, Leap Day. It's just a leap year this year, and today is the leap day of that leap year. It is Thursday. We're going to start recording on a Thursday uh, for most of the rest of the year. Uh, and just by coincidence, it fell on a leap day, which is a little bit cool. <laughs> Yeah. And our topics this week are the Bangala Aboriginal people are building a $1 billion empire in land deals. It's a very interesting story. And the ATO are eyeing up controversial robo-tax scheme in a bid to recoup $15 billion in debts. Oh, we've heard this before. <laughs> and of course, we've got our two ticks town talk. Then we'll jump into this week in Australian history with our deet. And we're going to finish off, as always, with a Forex bottle top questions. And I will give you a little hint. The questions this week are about leap years. So do stick around for those. Ooh. Before we get into all of that. Let's catch up with the last week. Adit, it's actually been, for us, it's been a couple of weeks because I've been away, but what have you been up to? What's been going on? You're right. G'day, DK. Yeah, you're right. It has been a, uh, a, essentially a, a couple of weeks, but yeah, we're moving to this uh, Thursday time slot for the uh, rest of, well, most of the year, as you, you said. So, uh, listeners, you'll get the podcast uh, a couple of days later than what you've been what you've been getting, but I'm sure you can cope with that. You're all very smart. What have I been up to? Uh, well, first, I normally have meet night on Tuesday night after the podcast. So because we work out, um, my wife and I work out menus, meet night's actually tonight. So tonight I've got marinated lamb ribs, which I haven't done oh. before. So at the moment they're slow cooking in um they were marinated in the fridge for a couple of hours in some some red wine and garlic and crushed rosemary and um, stop teasing me oh my gosh (laughs) i know i went when i was getting my drink but uh, before to bring in for the podcast the oven had already started to sort of exude a bit of uh toasting garlic flavor i thought "Mm -mm, i'm looking forward to that uh, so yeah, look, that's tonight. But during this this past uh, past week or so, I've just been getting the working on getting the house ready. I've got my parents coming down for a a few days in a in I think it's about a, a fortnight. So we're using that as a, a, a line in the the sand to get some jobs done that we want to get done done for ourselves. That's also going to make the place presentable. So I've finished washing down the house yesterday. So that's always a a fun job to to do, but you know it looks good. Yeah, the paintwork looks better, and yeah, it's always good giving that a bit of a a clean. Uh, so yeah, that's been busy there, busy in the the garden, and also too we um, are wanting to go. Not wanting to, we're going to be going to Japan for my birthday in October at Ooh. the the end of the year. Or oh, I wanted to have my birthday over there. It's my sixtieth birthday, so I wanted to do something. Uh, special, so we've been planning for that, but 
I misread the special offer from uh, Webjet. It was, oh, it's going to be a leap day sale on, and then it had below it um, you know, something about Asian airfares, and it looked like it was the one thing, and that started on February the 29th. So we set the alarm, and my wife and I got up at uh, you know, 10, just like 10 minutes just before midnight tonight because we'd called their um, the customer service, and they said, oh, yeah, it'll start on the – Start at uh, at midnight, which it didn't. They were lying to me. <laughs> but, but so we got up there. Midnight, uh, midnight Asia time, not midnight Australia time. Well, who look, who who knows? Because nothing happened then. And then I sort of oh, okay, went back to, to bed, and I you know, woke up about two o'clock, and I thought I'll check it again. Nothing there. Only four o'clock checked it, and then I thought, okay, well, maybe it's not till they open at eight o'clock. Nothing. There. When it finally kicked off at nine o'clock. It was a $29 discount on Australia fares, and the way the email was set out, um, it had nothing to do with Asian airfares. So <laughs> That's disappointing, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> it, was, it was very disappointing. Look, we ended because we were trying to narrow it down and we had this on the back burner, we did identify uh, the fare that we'd like. Uh, so we ended up we ended up booking it in, which was good. But yeah, when when it got the end, I thought, oh, damn it, I would have wouldn't have minded a bit off for that. <laughs> so yeah, so look, that's gosh, that's a, that's a, a long one. What have what have you been up to, and how is your uh, your, your your trip back up to Queensland? Uh, <laughs> so for our listeners, uh, I don't think I said this at all on the podcast. So for all of our listeners, uh, I recently and the reason we recorded back to back episodes a couple of weeks ago was because a friend of mine was moving from Melbourne up to Brisbane in Queensland uh, a journey that is uh, just short of 2,000 kilometers uh, drive so I thought I can't I can't let you do this by yourself uh, so I flew down uh, to help him uh, pack up pack up his, his, uh, all of his house, essentially, uh, in the back of the ute, and we drove north. And it, we, did, we didn't we did rush, uh, and we did take it over uh, three days. Um, but it was also a good excuse to see some friends uh, along the way. So we, we very much hightailed it out of Victoria. Uh, regular listeners of the show will know that I don't have a lot of love for the state of Victoria. Uh, sorry, <laughs> sorry for all our listeners that are, in fact, Victorian. Uh, but if you're not from Victoria, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> but I, I will have to say... To be fair, Northern Victoria is an area that I've only ever been through once before, and it is actually very nice. Uh, yeah. I could I could quite easily uh, uh, spend a lot a lot more time in Northern Victoria, so I'll, I'll give you that. Um, and then we head we headed straight to Yass uh, in New South Wales, just outside of Canberra. Uh, shout out to a mate of mine that is currently running uh, the Yass. Uh, Yassa Valley Caravan Park uh, and we had a night there and it was uh, good food with good friends. It's always a good time. Um, nice. I mean, a couple of mates come from Canberra up as well uh, for the evening, which was nice as well. So we were, tr- we were trying to avoid Sydney at all costs just because while my, whilst my sister lives in Sydney and I, I previously li- lived in Sydney myself, um, she lives very much in 
very central Sydney. Uh, she lives in Surrey Hills, which for our foreign listeners uh, is about as central as you can get in Sydney. It's very much in the CBD and the city itself. So I really didn't want to spend uh, the... You know, if we were driving from Melbourne to Sydney, I think that's about nine to ten hours, depending on traffic uh, and I guess how quick you drive. Uh, I really didn't want to spend the end of a, a ten-hour day on the road uh, hitting rush hour, peak Sydney, central Sydney traffic. So I said to her, "Sorry, thanks, but no thanks. We're not coming to see you." <laughs> and uh, we stayed in Yass that night, and then we hightailed it past Sydney, through through Western Sydney, around the new Ring Road, which I have to give them the New South Wales government for. That's very good. Not a lot of traffic, which was really nice. Um, yeah. yep. And we skedaddled up to Coffs Harbour, uh, saw a couple of mates in Coffs Harbour, and again, good food with good friends. Uh, and shout out, we went to the Big Banana, uh, which... I'd driven past many times, but never actually stopped at. And it was it was cool. It was it was really good. We played mini golf there, uh, and it was a lot of fun. So if you do go to Coffs Harbour, do stop it at the Big Banana. It was it was well worth a little bit of money. It wasn't very expensive, um, and it was a good time. You finally saw the appeal. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Fantastic. Hey, well, fun. I did, didn't realise you'd uh, caught up with. That's that's pretty good that you're able to sort of catch up with so many mates and have a a feed and a catch up along the way. That's well done. Yeah. So we really did. um, The reason we drove the coast road as opposed to the inland route, which probably would have saved us time, um, but we didn't really know anyone that was going to be out there or the guys that we did know that live sort of in the West, you know, more, more Western areas. um, They're not really on those, the highway. Um, So it would have, we would have been going more out of our way. So we decided, We'll stick to the coast road, which we've both driven before, um, so we're familiar with it. Um, even though it was going to add a little bit to our time, not a lot, but a little bit to our time, um, we weren't in a huge rush anyway, and we just wanted to to get there safely. And, and it was good because we did get to see some friends and, and some sights along the way as well. So we saw the dog on the tucker box, which was uh, a... <laughs> um, <laughs> the phrase freaking underwhelming comes to mind whenever I say it. What did you think? Uh, basically the same thing. Um, I, I had seen it uh, because it was the subject of our Two Tech Town Talk. Um, I think it's uh, – I can't remember when. Um, I think you did it, the dog in the tucker box at Gunda Guy. And, uh, yeah, I was I was underwhelmed. But also I, I kind of knew what to expect because of your Two Tech Town Talk, your fantastic Two Tech Town Talk. Um, and we didn't stop there just to see it. We actually – Stopped there because there's a big servo there, um, <laughs> and there was uh, we went there to get a get a sandwich from Subway. So it was more of a you know we were already stopped kind of thing. So we just drove up the road and I took a photo of the the dog in the tucker box, uh, or I should say I took a photo with the dog in the tucker box. Yeah. Um, and then of course another one of our two ticks town talk towns. Uh, we stopped in Goulburn and we saw the. Giant uh, Merino Ram. The big Merino at Goulburn. Yeah. Yep, that's where we went. So we stopped there. Uh, we stopped uh, at the bakery next door. I'm trying to think of the name of the bakery. Uh, it was very good. It was called 
Trappers. That's what it was. Trappers Bakery. Oh, you I've just, I've just looked on the map. No, oh, I haven't looked on the map. Trappers Bakery in Goulburn. Uh, absolutely fantastic. Uh, really, really good. Worth stopping for. Um, great pie, especially quick and easy in the morning. Uh, and it was very popular with a lot of tradies because it was about five o'clock in the morning we were there. Um, so there wasn't many many people around, but there was ah. a couple of couple of police officers and a lot of tradies and they're getting a breakfast pie, same oh, as us. Got the good pies then. Got the good pies in the morning. Yeah. Fresh out of the oven. Oh, bloody oath. Better than bloody going into the survey for a death bag. Oh, exactly. We were trying to avoid, you know, eating too much really crappy food, uh, especially because when you're sitting in the car for uh, eight to ten hours, uh, you know, the bowels aren't quite what they used to be and you've got to be a bit more <laughs> mindful about what you're eating, um, especially if you're just stuck next to another bloke. Uh, <laughs> you know, you've got to think about these things, a little, bit of, a little bit of forethought. So, And, of course, like I said before, we saw the big banana along the way as well, which we specifically haven't covered yet, I should say, in our Two Ticks Town Talk, uh, but the big banana is... Is, as described, it is a giant banana uh, in Coffs Harbour, right along the Pacific Highway, um, and it is it is a banana plantation and a little bit of a theme park there as well. So, um, and then we made our way up to Brisbane, and we stopped at the legendary, very famous uh, Yatla Pies for our last. As much as I said, we're trying to eat good. Um, we yes. couldn't go past scoffing pies. <laughs> we couldn't go past Yatla Pies. That is pretty famous in um, in in Queensland, especially in in Brisbane. So um, and. Rightfully so. It, they're, they're absolutely fantastic. I would argue probably better than Trappers uh, in New South Wales, but, you know, that's a fight that others can have. Um, and that's a little bit of Queensland-New South Wales rivalry. But, yeah, all in all, it was a good trip. Um, well we got to see lots of the country, but I wouldn't be in a hurry to do it again, that's for sure. No, it's a long one. Yeah, I do, I do agree with you. And look, there's a, a good pie. There's nothing wrong with a good good pie you know if it's um you know, if it's got decent cuts of meat in it rather than you know bloody pig's bumps if you've actually got you know nice slices of you know a, a good quality meat in there and it's low on the low on the salt and low on the um the, the additives and it's got you know sort of a, a thin crispy uh pastry oh i reckon you can do worse I think that's the secret. You got a, a good pie is made with good ingredients and yep. a, you know a bit of care. Uh, the secret ingredient is love, um, <laughs> and that's what makes a good pie. It, it, it's not you can get uh, you know because both of those places I just described are obviously very large bakeries. They sell a lot of products every day, um, but the quality is fantastic, and it's the quality of ingredients, and they're not skimping. That's the other thing, you know. Yeah. When you bite into a meat pie and it's got no meat in it, it's pretty oh. disappointing. Um, you know, gravy's cheap, meat's expensive. I get it, but when you you know when you're paying six or seven bucks for a pie, you well, sort yeah. of expend it. You know, you ex- expect it to be to be at least half decent. So. Um, yep. Now let's kick off 
the Bangala Aboriginal people are building a billion dollar empire and land deals. And this, look, this is a really interesting story that does have a lot of history, which we don't really have time to get in. In this segment, we don't really have time to get into a, a, a you know, really granular uh, historical context. But I'll give you a real quick overview just to catch everybody up. So the Bangala people, um, they filed a native land claim for 44,500 square kilometers of the Air Peninsula in South Australia in 1996, and this was actually awarded to them in 2015. And the area is almost a triangle in shape, encompassing the coast between Port Augusta and Port Lincoln in South Australia. Now, for those of our foreign listeners that have no idea what any of those words mean, it's a huge area <laughs> of of South Australia. Uh, there's a large peninsula. At the bottom of Australia, we call it the. Uh, uh, it, it, it's next to the Great Australian Bite, which is that bottom of Australia that literally looks like someone's taken a, a bite out of the continent. And there's a peninsula there that sort of juts out, um, and it's it's the peninsula itself is vaguely uh, triangular in shape, and about two thirds of that peninsula was awarded uh, to the Bangala people, and in twenty. 23, they successfully overturned a proposed nuclear waste facility that was going to be placed on the peninsula. Um, and last month, they put a pause to a $313 million desalination plant until a deal had been reached with them. Now, they're not just shutting down projects, though. They're actively encouraging a lot as well. So this this area of Australia is, is reasonably barren. Um, there's not a huge amount of farming and things like that. There's, there is a little bit of it down towards Port Lincoln, down the south of the peninsula. But the vast majority of this area is quite uh, arid. Um, there are sort of a sprinkling of small towns, but it, it is what you would consider reasonably uninhabited, you know, in an Australian context. Um, and they've been striking deals all over the place. Uh with an estimated annual revenue streams worth between 50 and 80 million dollars a year by taking stakes in several solar and wind energy projects and the stakes in these developments plus the revenue streams from the multi-billion dollar hydrogen and green iron projects are expected to make the Barngala Determination Aboriginal Corporation the first in Australia to be worth at least a billion Australian dollars, particularly without any current government funding. The Bangala Determination Aboriginal Corporation, uh, Sonia Dare, said that the board worked hard to recognise the economic prospects for enterprises wanting to use their 44,500 square kilometres of land spanning Neastern and Northeastern and Peninsula. She said... Our community decided that if companies were going to profit from using our country, then we should demand a stake in the project through proactive and meaningful negotiation. No successful company gives away their profits, so why should we be expected to? We now have shareholdings in major ports on our country. We are the landlords of the largest solar farm being developed on our country. 
and we have indigenous land agreements with mining and utility companies that have resulted in strong monetary and asset base for all Bangala people, whilst also contributing to the sustainable future for all South Australians. And the Bangala people are now involved in about half of the nation's commercial negotiations for Indigenous land use agreements, which are voluntary agreements involving native title parties about the use and management of areas of land and waters. They're also seeking an agreement, as I said at the start, uh, they've put a pause to a third $313 million desalination plant. Um, they're in talks and negotiations with the South Australian Water Board to for that project to go ahead i think they want it to be moved the location of of the plant to be moved and also for the plants uh to pay basically to pay rent on the lands and the water use that they're going to be using so i think this is a bit this is a bit of a one i think that's going to divide some australians um when they hear about this feeling like um there is a bit of uh, sort of property rights are being infringed on. Uh, however, I would like to point out that the land grant that was given includes the towns within its boundaries are the towns of Point Augusta and Port Lincoln. However, the private property rights of the people that own property in those towns are absolutely respected. So it's not like they're kicking anyone off their land or anything like that. They're just the traditional owners of the land are actually profiting from the land that they owned for once, which I think is is quite a success story. Um, I, I'm curious to see how this may be repl replicated in other areas in the future, because, of course, especially for our international listeners, it's worth remembering that the Aboriginal peoples of Australia are not a united group. Um, they are... There's literally hundreds of language groups and thousands of different, uh, for lack of a better word, we'll call them almost like nations. Um, mm. And each of these groups have their own vested interests and things like that as well. So um, yeah, I think exactly. this is, yeah. I think this broadly speaking is quite a success story for this group of people. Um, the, the um, Bangala Determination Aboriginal Corporation, I believe, represents about a thousand First Nations peoples, which really isn't a lot considering the amount of money that they're going to be making. So they're going to set up um, whole communities for for many generations, which I think is really important that they're at, apparently at this point in time, they're seemingly being very responsible with how they're managing the land uh, and their finances and everything like that going forward, but yet to be seen into the future. But I think overall, this is a pretty, pretty successful story. What do you think? Yeah, look, I, I love this story. Um, I, the, the more details that I saw of it, read of it, uh, the more that I, I liked it. Uh, as you said, the land rights claims are controversial uh, amongst you know different different segments of the community. I can under I can understand that. Uh, you look at how the system works. They've gone through the system. They made their claim. They made their case. They got it awarded. That's all within the system that's available to. Um, to well, I suppose it's available to everyone as much as I think. Much as I think there's some instances where that's a bit of a 
a cop out in terms of this uh, claim for land rights or to control uh, control a land. Uh, they've gone through the appropriate channels and done what's required of the, the the current laws. And good luck to them; they won. Not all these outcomes are guaranteed. In fact, there's plenty of these land claims that uh, do fail. So they got it, and I love the fact that they have then developed it in conjunction with. Um, I suppose it's a. a an, an ideology or a culture they're wanting to do with the respect for the for the land. Yeah, I'm not I'm not Aboriginal, but I do understand that there can be a, a different connection. Uh, yeah, mentally and physically and spiritually with the, the the land and the fact that they're like what I really love about this is they're sort of straddled a couple of cultures here, and mm. by that I mean. They said, "Okay, look, this is this is our place that we're sort of looking after. We're going to do the best for the the land. You know, you've still got the towns, you've still got your private property, you've still got everything, uh, and we understand that we're in a modern world now, and different projects have to go ahead. So we've got a whole lot of land, we've got a whole lot of choice of projects. We're not just going to accept anything just because we own it. We're actually going to have a bit of discernment in there. Yeah, things like that. You mentioned the green iron." Yeah, look, I I like stuff like that. I'm I'm as as listeners know, I'm not a not really a big climate change believer. However, I don't like pollution and I can accept there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere. So I like projects like this that can actually reduce that pollution and help reduce that CO2. So it's accepting that okay, we're we're in a, we're in a, an age where you have to grow, you have to move ahead, you have to put these projects into to place, and the attitude from what I've read here seems to be okay. How do we make this happen? How do we actually work with everybody around us and for you know, sort of the good of Australia and make this this occur? I also love too that. <laughs> I do love that they turn around and there's just there's no need for government funding. It's sort of like, look, we've got this, we've got it sorted, we're building something here. Uh, they've got the company mindset. I yes. think that was something that I think was very important. It's you know the the way this red it stands up against any other sort of. Um, corporate venture who controls you know a large area whether it be by by mining lease or by actually you know owning an area i thought that was that was highly positive uh, look you made the comment we'll see how it goes going ahead i mean you know it's it's not you know 2015 is not that long ago but the way that this has started i think has a it sends a signal on how things can be done should the people who get the land choose to do it that way. Uh, but it also creates a model. And the advantage of creating a model is that if you can distill the essence of that model, you can do like that using that US um, expression, you can use it as a cookie cutter. Yes, and if you can apply this to other areas in Australia, you're going to benefit the traditional owners of the land, and you're actually going to benefit uh, Australia as a whole. I, 
my initial impression on this, I'm highly positive about this one. Yeah, I think you've you've sort of summed it up really well that this could be uh, quote unquote a cookie cutter or like a a template for for other because mm. um, a lot of the, there are a lot of native title claims for much of Australia and the process that these go through is incredibly long as we saw this one was put in in 1996 and it was only granted in 2015 so it is a, a very long and drawn out process and the fact that they've hit the ground running essentially since being given this um, and they're not just trying to stop everything which unfortunately has been the case in the past and i understand that can be for cultural issues and uh or i shouldn't say issues for cultural reasons um yeah connection to the land and things like that um the the lake uh, the air peninsula is reasonably barren there is a bit of farmland towards the tip uh but especially at the north you know you you're you're basically jutting up against uh the simpson desert uh so the that area there is of course prime for for solar power for mm. and south australia i think is kind of uniquely placed for this sort of um taking advantage of this sort of uh, infrastructure because the South Australian government is trying to go completely green, completely renewable, I should say, with their power grid and expanding their renewable uh, power grid sort of infrastructure. So they're really on the ball when it comes to solar and wind power. And obviously the the air peninsula has a bit of both so when you've got companies lining up saying let's do this let's do that instead of throwing up roadblocks actually sitting down with them and go yeah okay let's see how we can hash this out um and with the government incentives for those businesses to set up shop where you're located it's really good to see them actually taking um taking ownership over this and and you know hitting the ground running as i said and and actually not necessarily trying to just shut everything down, looking to the future and going, yeah, you know what? As much as we may, this is going to happen with or without us. So let's, yep. be a, let's be a stakeholder in this so that we do have some control. We do have a voice to, uh, you know, say how this is going to work. And also we can benefit from us. Our community can benefit from us, not just now, but into the future as well. Um, you know, like I said, I think the, the, currently it's about a thousand people that the um, corporation represents. We're talking a billion dollars uh, worth of capital that they're going to be sitting on. That's going to set up these people for generations. And especially if it's well managed oh, into the future, yeah. you know, how incredible, uh, what an incredible gift to give to your uh, your children and your grandchildren uh, moving forward. And that's where I kind of go, a little bit of skepticism kicks in and goes, you know, any group of people, and we've seen this all around the world, it's not unique to Aboriginal Australians or, or Australians in general. We've seen this all around the world uh, where huge amounts of money get gets poured in oftentimes uh, through 
resource wealth. Uh, you know, my mind immediately goes to some of the Gulf countries uh, yes. that have a lot of oil um, or say places like Venezuela that haven't necessarily managed that particularly well. Um, and within a generation or two, the, the sort of corrupting power that the money can have uh, on the populations. And I really hope something like that doesn't happen. But these guys do seem to really know what they're doing um, and they're managing it really well so far. So fingers crossed they don't sort of fall into that trap. But, you know, that's yet to be seen. So It, it depends how it's structured. I mean, I, 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 do, agree with, I, I do agree with you on, on that. But you can also then take a step back and say, something like BHP, which is, um, yeah, I'm not always a fan of corporations, but it's a, it's a workable structure. You know, they've been around for a long time and it's the, the structure, the entity that survived and is serving the, the shareholders, who in this case would be the Bagala people. But if you've got that sort of uh, corporate structure set up, it may well put a dampener on some of the... Um, personally corruptible situations which have been detrimental to setups like this in the past. Absolutely. You know, my mind goes to, I think it was Nauru, um, the small yeah. Micronesian country of Nauru, at one point was the wealthiest country on earth per capita because of the phosphorus mining that occurred on the island. Um, and that was a bit of a curse because it wasn't managed particularly well. Um, and when the phosphorus mining sort of, it, it's not completely wound down, but it's definitely nothing like it used to be. Um, the country now, its economy has really suffered as a result of that success. Um, I actually think there's an uh, economist call it Dutch disease. Um, not sure why. But okay. it's it's basically that that curse of often it's a resource boom uh, where all of a sudden you get very successful for some reason um, you know you discovered oil or gold or in Nauru's case phosphorus um, lots of money comes in very very quickly and oftentimes it's associated with the fact that it's generally foreign capital building up the resource extraction they often bring their workers with them um so the skills aren't transferred to the local population and then once the so the the, the local people can benefit from it financially but once either you know the oil, oil sort of winds up or whatever and is and is gone there's no overarching benefit to the wider community it's kind of so I really hope something like this doesn't happen. And I don't think it will because it's um, they've sort of already started to diversify. It's not just um, it's not just the solar and wind, it's also the iron mine, the green hydrogen, the water use, which that desalination plant, providing it goes ahead uh, in, in its uh new location um will continue to provide water for the air peninsula for who knows mm. decades potentially so if everything goes right if they play the cards right this can be a massive success for a long term but at least in the short term right now i think it has been very very successful and i just hope it continues 
to be successful into the future. But yeah, same here. As I'm a fan of saying, watch this space. <laughs> Let's move on to our two ticks town talk. All right, on the two ticks town talk. Now, this town is not particularly big, but it's well known. Technically, it's not a town, but it's a station. Uh, it's almost 6,000 kilometres from Adelaide and Melbourne and about 5,500 kilometres from Hobart and Perth. And its temperature is not going to suit a Queenslander. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I'm talking about Mawson Station in Antarctica, commonly called Mawson. So it's one of uh, three permanent bases and research uh, outposts in Antarctica measured by the Australian Antarctic Division uh, in, a, in a place called Home Bay in McRobertson Land. It was established in 1954 and it's Australia's oldest Antarctic station and the oldest continuously inhabited Antarctic station south of the Antarctic uh, Circle. So it usually has about 20 personnel over winter and up to 53 in summer and was named after Sir Douglas Mawson. So just a bit of a history. Um, coasts and mountains of McRobertson's land were first sighted by uh, Douglas uh, Mawson. There was in a seaplane reconnaissance um, and... Mawson charted the, the, the land and the coastline um, during a, a cruise around there, and uh, he landed at Cape Bruce, which was the first known landing in that region of East Antarctica. Around the same time, Norwegian whalers were active in the area, and they named a number of features, including the, the Fremnes Mountains. And during, uh, from 46 to 1946, to 1947, uh, the US took aerial photographs of the region and the Australian Antarctic Division used uh, those photos to select places to establish uh, Australia's first overwintering station on the Antarctic continent. So Law, Philip Law, who was the uh, manager of the Australian Antarctic Division, he obtained approval to mount a voyage to Antarctica in 1953-54 aboard the Kista Dan, a ship that sailed from Australia uh, where the exhibition collected men and dogs uh, wintering on uh, Heard Island. So there's also two islands that the Australian Antarctic Division has uh, bases on. Uh, February 1954, he reached Horseshoe Harbour, raised the Australian flag, naming the station in honour of the Australia's polar explorer, Douglas Mawson. And in a first year, party of 10 Australians spent winter in cramped accommodation. By 54, they'd uh, got a couple of huts, carpenter shops, shops, and 66. They had the buildings around there up to 50. And it became had become the base for exploring exploration of the uh, the, the coast to the Amory Ice Shelf and into Enderbury Land. So uh, today it's a collection of like those old buildings, 
and new ones. And Mawson is now one of the longest continuously operation, operating stations in Antarctica and the oldest south of the Antarctic Circle. So a couple of factoids. Um, it's a base for scientific research programs, including underground cosmic ray, de- including an underground cosmic ray detector, uh, long-term meteorological aeronomy and geomagnetic studies, as well as ongoing conservation biology studies. In particular, there's uh, emperor penguins nearby uh, at Adelaide. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. A D um, accented E Adelaide penguins. Um, in 2018, astronaut and academic J.C. Buckley conducted research using virtual reality at the Australian Antarctic Division's Mawson Station, and his experiment was uh, the expedition has used VR headsets to view Australian beach scenes, European nature scenes, and North American nature scenes of forests and urban environments, which obviously were completely different from the isolation (laughs) and the whiteness of that. So the reason for that one was to inform psychological techniques to support long-duration space flight, such as for astronauts going to Mars. I thought that was an interesting, interesting thing to put somebody in that situation because mentally and physically you're going to know that you're isolated and see what happens when you do the VR. Which makes a lot of sense, actually, yeah. Yeah, it does. Well, it's just, it was an interesting experiment. Because they're so isolated, you can... Mm. It's a good population to exp- experiment on, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and it's a good, good place to send somebody to it. Like if, you, if you sort of think, oh, yeah, I'm putting on the VR, but, you know, I, when I finish the shift to, today, I can go down to the, the beach and do something. Um it's a little bit different when you're thinking, well, when I finish the shift, I'm just going to be looking at snow and cold. <laughs> yeah, or not being able to go outside because yeah. uh, because it's winter and I don't want to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I thought that was an interesting one. Uh, Mawson's also the only Antarctic station to use wind generators designed to take advantage of the fierce catabatic winds which are high-density air from a higher elevation that moves down a slope under the force of gravity. So you know how sometimes you see those things like clouds falling over the side of a, a, a cliff? Yep. Uh, those t- yeah. So, oh, well, God, you, you're a sailor. You'd know what catabatic winds are probably. Um, it's, uh, the, the ocean famously doesn't have many mountains in it, but yes. <laughs> yes, that's really, yeah, I think you're, I think you're actually right on that. <laughs> uh, just that you might know about the winds. So look, I thought the history of Mawson was interesting, uh, but Mawson himself, I, I liked uh, a few details about him and I'll go into that. And there was also something else about Mawson that was, I know, is very near and dear to your, your heart. Yeah. So a little bit of a little bit of a blurb about Mawson him uh, himself. He was undertaking a doctorate doctorate at Sydney Uni, joined Ernest Shackleton's 1907 to 1909 Nimrod exhibition as a geologist. That was his first Antarctic experience. So along with his mentor professor, 
uh, who was at TW Edgeworth, David, uh, who is doing the PhD with, he completed the longest Antarctic man-hauling sledge journey of 122 days. Wow. Um, <laughs> God, that's a long time to haul, haul a bloody sled. Oh, God. No, thanks. No, no. So explorers during that time were, they were focused on being the first to reach the South Geographic Pole, but Mawson was sort of keen on advancing scientific knowledge. Um, So he was inspired to develop uh, an Australian-led Antarctic research expedition. So he recognised the potential on that and he wanted to actually get the the research happening. Um, So... Embarking on the Australasian Antarctic Exhibition with Mawson, John King Davis captained a ship called the Aurora with a crew of uh, with a crew and thirty one expeditioners. The ship carried materials for living huts and wireless masts uh, for radio comms. A five man base was set up at Macquarie Island, and the re- remainder sailed to the Antarctic to establish two bases. So Mawson led the main base, a Commonwealth Bay, and the other bloke, Frank Wilde, led the Western base at Queen Maryland. So in uh, uh, in November 1912 of that expedition, the Far Eastern Sledging Party, led by Mawson, left the main base um, and were not aware of the tragedy that was about to happen. So on the Traverse, uh, one of the explorers, Belgrave Ninnis, was lost when he plummeted down a crevasse with a sledge carrying many of the supplies. Oh, no. Oh, I know. I just, I mean, you'd be, you'd, be, you'd be torn. You'd think, oh, my God, we've lost him and we've lost the supplies. And oh, plummeting down a crevasse is... Oh, oh no. that's that's a nightmare. Oh, no, my gosh. <laughs> oh. uh, another one of the expeditioners, Xavier Mertz, uh, perished from physical exhaustion, starvation, and possible toxicity from eating dog's livers. Yes. They um, got uh, vitamin A toxicity, I believe, yeah. Because uh. they had to eat the dogs because the... the uh, the supplies fell down a crevasse. <laughs> it just goes from bad to worse. <laughs> so Mawson was the only one left, but he was determined to return with the data and uh, specimens they'd collected. Uh, so he struggled, <laughs> struggled back for 30 days, reached, eventually reached the base, only to miss the ship retrieving the men by hours. Yeah. So... <laughs> Fortunately, even though he missed the ship, there was um, six men from the Aurora who said, "Look, we're going to we're going to stay back, search for the party when we we can." Um, so they were there and were able to spend winter with with Mawson. Um, so yeah, that sort of worked out well. Well, worked out well. But aside from yeah. all the horrible tragedies, <laughs> it worked out well for, for, for Mawson. So that Australasian Antarctic exhibition successfully charted large segments of the East Antarctic coastline, invested sub-Antarctic Macquarie Island and the Southern Ocean, and their land exploration included over 6,400 kilometres um, 
in Adele Land, King George V Land, and Queen Mary Land. Uh, the expedition advanced scientific knowledge of Antarctica in the fields of geology, cartography, meteorology, geomagnetism, biology, and marine science. Uh, so all the sort of dreams of actually of Mawson making it a, a research um, project were, well, not all the dreams, but you know, a lot of them were realised. Uh, biological species on land and sea, which had never before been encountered by humans, were described for the first time. And there were 22 volumes of scientific reports produced, including meteorological data and geomagical, geomagnetic fields collected over 18 months. So it was a pretty impressive expedition. Uh, we had Mawson, we, Australian Commonwealth, had uh, on the first Australian $100 note. Now, I'll just actually, I'm going, I'm going to quiz you a bit on this because I was surprised on the date. When do you reckon the first Australian $100 note came out? Uh, see, I feel like I should know this because we I did a bit of a, a history on Australian currency, but I actually genuinely have no idea. <laughs> um, just $100, so it has to be pre-post-decimalization. Uh, yep. So... But you have to have a practical reason to have a bill that high, right? You're not going to just yep. do it for no reason. So I'm going to say like the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 1984. There so, well, yeah, well reasoned. So that was a paper note. Um, and then after, after that, uh, where was it? From May 1996, we went to our, our polymer notes. Polymer notes, yep. yeah. With experiments in the 80s to make them. Our our regular listeners will know all about it. Yeah. And I, I can't even tell you when when I did that, but it was a while ago. No, probably I, a year I, ago. As you were saying that, I was trying to, trying to remember when that was. But yeah, yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah. Uh, so Mawson's no longer on the $100 um, note. Uh, and God, I bloody looked it up today because my wife asked me, I'd mentioned this. Because I, I actually had had a had a dream that involved somebody giving me money and it had a blue paper note on. It. I thought, oh, that's because I've dreamt about this. I can't remember. I actually have. Uh, it was Dame Nelly Melbourne and someone else. It's John Monash. Monash, that's right, General General yeah. Monash. Yeah. Okay. Now, what else caught my eye about uh, Mawson and the Antarctica? So I want to finish this on something I know is very near and dear to your heart, DK. So what would you do if you were isolated on a station for months on end and had plenty of free time and some sugar? I would. Some hops. <laughs> I would make beer. <laughs> I, as soon as you said sugar, I was like, I'm making grog. Yeah. But then again, where, uh, where do you get the yeast from down there? I can't imagine there's much wild yeast in Antarctica. No. Well, you have to, you have to bring it in. There is a long history. In fact, almost since the... Um, almost since the Australian presence down there. And look, it's not just the Australian presence, but you know, we've been down there for a while. And uh, 
you know, of home brewing it. So there's a there's a certain amount that you're allowed to take. Uh, but oh, well, let me tell you about it. So the Australian Antarctic Division's got several bases. There's there's two islands, Macquarie Island and Heard Island, which are in the subantarctic, and then on the uh, continent of Antarctica, uh, there is Mawson, Casey, and uh, Davis. All of them had uh, home brewing, and yes. That's in the past tense. So we'll hear about the bureaucrats oh. wielding their oh. red tapes of misery at the end. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I had to I had to go into the past tense for that, but uh yeah. So it's not a happy ending. Uh but for now, let's enjoy some stories of uh home brewing in the Antarctica. So there was this this is from the ABC in twenty seventeen, which was talking about Macquarie Island, and it was a good uh, description of what goes on in the islands and uh, bases. So I also like to, in, in particular, the communal nature of helping with preparation, washing bottles, and creating festivities around the f- finished batches. That was a common theme in all the ones that I was reading through here. So, from this article, the Brewmaster is a position on the island in the southwest Pacific Ocean, about halfway between New Zealand and Antarctica, that involves boosting researchers' morale with a steady supply of beer. Uh, research station leader Kyle Williams said life was similar to back home, and it was not unusual for expeditioners to let their hair down after a hard working week. So, Brewmaster was an, appoint, an appointed position secondary to their, their actual role at the, the station. So that people didn't actually go down just to be brewmaster, but somebody... Uh, <laughs> I <laughs> volunteer. Yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so for most expeditioners, due to their busy work schedule, we don't have a lot of time at all. But when we do, we have the privilege of having a drink after hours. A couple of expeditioners are appointed at the start of the season as, as brew masters. Normally once a week or a fortnight, they go to a brewing area, which involves brewing the beer, cleaning the bottles, and bringing them into the mess for social gatherings, Mr. Williams said. We celebrate birthdays and major events. We usually have something on once every fortnight to keep us engaged, which would just be so important down there. You know, it's mm. not, if, you know, yeah. Uh, they actually had, he said, we actually had a version of Oktoberfest where everyone got to sample oh. a range of nine different beers that the Viewmaster had provided. That's cool. Yeah, that was. And then there was a 2016 interview in a website called The Crafty Pint. And we'll have, I'll have all these references as usual in the show notes, which you'll find in the, uh, where you download your podcast. Uh, you'll also find it on the r slash australian subreddit when we post this interview uh post this episode uh so yeah this was an interview in the crafty pint with researchers on casey station which had one of the the bigger brewing things and highlights some of the aspects of brewing in the antarctic environment uh they had a dedicated brewing area or oh, this is in the present tense because it's 2016 casey has a dedicated brewing area with a kit large enough to yield around 230 bottles or 19 litres per brew and a storage area large enough to hold 2,500 bottles worth of the precious liquid. Mm. That's a few bottles. Uh, in winter, the population at Casey Station drops from around 100 people 
down to just a quarter of that. So brewing brewing becomes an important part of keeping the small team socialising and entertained in the downside times. Uh, so pretty much anyone who wants to help is welcome. He says, however, over when we have a core group of about 10 regulars uh, with almost the rest of the crew, almost all of the rest of the crew helping out occasionally. Uh, we have had everyone from politicians, journalists, electricians, university professors, doctors, plumbers, builders to Canadian pilots and PhD students helping with the uh, brewing. That's a great social atmosphere, and we even get non-beer drinkers helping, which is not surprising. If you're down there, I imagine you want to see it be involved in the, the social things. So this is what you were asked. You have to be super organized with ingredients and spare parts, as we usually only have one main supply delivery each year. One good thing is it's easy to chew the beer. Just leave it outside for 30 yeah, minutes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that was that was one of the because I, I and I haven't got details of it here, but there was someone from uh Mawson Station or Casey, I can't remember which one was uh, speaking to an online forum, getting suggestions for what beers to brew next because they'd run out of hops and they weren't getting supplied for, a, I can't remember, it was for a few months. So it went into a whole lot of beer technicalities that I don't particularly understand. Um, but yes, when you're out of supplies, you don't just go down to the shops. No, it's a bit... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. it's a bit more difficult. <laughs> yeah, so we'll finish off the uh, stories of the, the the beers with a story from Mawson in 1959, and this is Blake uh, Graham Bud. I had bought the recipe from Heard Island, where in 1954 it had been known as Azarella Juice, but my grateful patience at Mawson had produced the poster scene on the the door, which celebrated its virtues and ended with the punchline. Your doctor will tell you it's good for you. The figures left to right, and there's a, a, a photo of a couple of, of blokes. You'll see that in the link. Uh, ionospherics physicist Ross Dunlop and senior meteorologist Ian Widows, who earlier in the year, uh, excuse me, uh, who earlier in the, the year had had a retro caseal appendix removed while lying on one of the mess tables and being a tall sort of chap the sewing machine yeah i can think of other places i'd like to have an operation not down there yeah <laughs> <laughs> and he finishes off by saying my most popular medical decision of the year was when exploding homebrew bottles on a shelf in the kitchen had obliged me to declare a public health emergency requiring that the hazard be removed forthwith by emptying the bottles in an appropriate manner. Compliance, I'm happy to report, was 100%. <laughs> that, Which that was... The, uh, the old exploding homebrew bottles is uh, definitely something to watch out for if you are brewing. Um, it's easy to do and it makes a very, very big mess. <laughs> now, finally, the bureaucrats strike again, the banning of the brew. So in 21, 2021, all home brewing was banned. Ah, you, yeah. It's so recent. I ah. know. Yeah, exactly. So it was a new alcohol, a new alcohol policy implemented by the Australian Antarctic Division. Um, uh, so from that, uh, 
an ABC article, the incoming AAD policy recognises the need to create a comfortable and safe community atmosphere on research stations with the ability to have a drink while engaging socially and to celebrate special occasions. Do you reckon that wasn't freaking crafted? Mm. The division's director, Kim Ellis, said so. Remember his name. Uh, he said the policy was not a response to was not a response to any particular incidents, but to risks associated with living in Antarctica. So it wasn't actually hey. yeah. And he said Antarctica is a new, unique environment. It's incredibly cold, incredibly harsh, and very small mistakes can lead to big consequences. Mister Ellis said. Here in Hobart, you might have a drink and go out and sit in the front yard and stare at the stars, but if you do that in Antarctica, you're drunk and go out and stare at the stars, we'll find your body in the morning. So, yeah, didn't really buy that. No. Well, uh, considering it's never happened before, it doesn't sound yeah. like it's a, it's a solution looking for a problem, not the other yeah. way around. And then he, then he, throw, he throws in... Um, uh, Mr. Ellis said home brewing at Antarctica stations um, would no longer be permitted because it was not possible to safely manage consumption, hygiene standards, and alcohol content. I mean, been doing it for 60 years. So, right. Yeah, so- we need a petition. We need to get it back because, uh, yeah, that's... I'm upset about that, and it doesn't even affect me. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I thought it was. So, but this bloke himself, he said, on my first trip down in 79, I can remember us making a St. Patrick's Day brew with green dye. It was just terrible, but that was the tradition, Mr. Ellis said. There's also the argument that it brought the Antarctic stations into line with workplace standards at other government places. So, look, I can, I can see the argument, however... To me, it seems like a shame in many ways to end an mm. established tradition. You know, maybe throwing out the yeast with the the wastewater. So, <laughs> yes. to remember his name, there's a little sting in the tail from an article in the Australian 2022 titled "Busted Smuggling Booze in into, into Antarctica." This week, Australia's sorry, this week Antarctica's own Chappelle Corby scandal struck the icy desert only with less boogie board cases and more professional shame. Australia's Antarctic chief was caught smuggling alcohol into the frozen continent this week in violation of a law he created. In a, oh. sca- yeah, in a scandal Kim Ellis deemed to be embarrassing, idiotic and humiliating, Australia's man on the icy uh, continent apologised for his genuine mistake. He was caught sneaking the alcohol onto an RAAF flight from Hobart, Hobart to Wilkins Aerodrome, which he claimed to be a gift for somebody else. A likely story, they editorialized. <laughs> <laughs> Doing a routine, routine bag check, they discovered a bottle of wine in my luggage, he told the Australian, recounting the incident that occurred last November. I don't actually drink in the Antarctic and I barely drink in Australia. Somebody gave it to me as a gift to take to someone in the station. It wasn't for me. I was simply a courier to deliver it. So, yeah. Likely story, Mr. Ellis. But that- Rules for thee and not yeah. me. Bloody oath. Bloody oath. So that little bit brings us up to date on uh, Mawson, our two ticks town talk where even if they don't have enough to make a drink, they'll always have enough ice. 
<laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I I have always had an incredible fascination with Antarctica ever since I was a kid, which is how I knew about, uh, as I mentioned, uh, they got uh, vitamin A or suspected vitamin A poisoning oh. uh, because I'd read the story about Douglas Mawson's uh, uh journey adventure i don't know what to call it tragedy it's a bit Ooh. of everything really oh. um but incredible just an incredible story uh he wrote a book about it um i cannot remember what it's called um which i read when i was a kid um and i've used that as a fun fact ever since if you ever have to eat a husky don't eat its liver um <laughs> <laughs> that uh, someone okay. one day that might save your life. So keep that in the back of your mind. All the, or everyone that's listening to this, that fun fact: if you meet a husky, actually, and I've cursed <laughs> you with this knowledge now because anytime you ever see a husky, you'll think of that. Um, <laughs> uh, and I've uh, yeah, I've always had a thing. I'm, uh, I did have an opportunity many years ago to go down to Antarctica on a research vessel uh, working on it. And I didn't do it at the time. And actually, it's one of the things I've always regretted and will probably oh. will regret it for the rest of my life because uh, it would have been an incredible adventure. But there is some good news. You too can be a little bit closer to Antarctica because every day, uh, right now, the Australian government Antarctic uh, program releases a live webcam feed from uh, Casey Research Station, Mawson Research Station, Davis, Macqu and Macquarie Island. Yeah. Uh, and you can see a live feed of every day that happens. Uh, admittedly, the camera is stationary, but uh, you can actually see the goings-on down in Antarctica. So we might throw that in the show notes as well. Um, but okay, I I'll, get, yeah, I'll get you to send me that, that link just to now... Um our thing in disco is that facing in or facing out uh it's facing in so you see the base itself uh oh, okay. sort of the operations the daily operations of the base again it's not much to see uh yeah. but it is kind of cool to see you know just just they sort of do a, a, a time lapse uh of the day uh and uh obviously it's currently summer down there so there is a bit there's a bit going on um and it's just cool you know just to see what, what's happening and, and all that kind of stuff so um i'm sure you know their family and stuff like that because there is a few people down there at this time of the year doing repairs and all sorts of stuff getting ready for the winter so um it's it's a cool little feature that they have uh for all of the stations so you can have a look um, I am disappointed to hear that they don't do the homebrew anymore. I know there are, yeah. I know there are bars on the station. So the fact that he said that there's no way to monitor consumption is, is quite frankly, that's bullshit. Um, because they are served at a bar, I believe. Uh, yep. And I know for a fact uh, at the US's main station, I think it's called McMurdo, uh, which is very close to New Zealand's Scott base. Uh, they have a bar, and I'm pretty sure they actually have more than one because there's nothing to oh, do. They, I, I did like I. Th I think there's the the government the, the government the current government regulation is um, ten uh, drinks per week that you're allowed. Um, that's their you know their 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 ruling. Um, okay. So you can yeah. still drink. You can still get off work, have a beer, but you, it's just not brewed there anymore. Yes, exactly. So you're allowed to bring down some um, some alcohol. Uh, it's kept in a thing called Fort Fort Knox, uh, but you're restricted to either uh, like ten. I think it's ten 
something like 10 cans of beer, uh, the equivalent number of bottles of, of wine or um, half a, a bottle of, of spirits. Um, so, yeah, that is restricted. But because the, the homebrew was supplementing that, mm. um, they said no. But the Americans are doing the same thing because I thought, oh, well, hang on, is this just Australia? Um, the Americans are bringing in restrictions. They've, they've halved the allowable stuff there um, and bringing in similar restrictions as well. So the the, the bureaucrats are spreading. They're winning. Articles. They're winning yes. worldwide. Yeah. I, look, I, I do get – I understand the point from a safety factor. Like, yeah, sure. you know, if you've had a few too many, you'd stumble back to your – because there are multiple buildings in these spaces. It's not just one big – big building um and you can you do have to go outside in some at some points so i can understand how they're like look we don't want you to have a couple of drinks go outside you know lose your way yeah and and die in the snow i get it but the fact that it's been going on for as long as it has and it's never happened clearly shows that you know these are professional people it's not a bloody pub full of bogans yeah. <laughs> you know it's not the average queensland pub it's, it's antarctica full of professionals you know yeah. i'm sure something would happen eventually but i don't know i just feel like it's a bit bit over the top but either way yeah, but. i did too so and yeah. before we move on fun fact about antarctica none of the buildings doors lock oh really which, when you think about it, it completely makes sense. But, um, yeah, that's a bit of a fun fact. The doors themselves don't lock. They can't lock. Uh, and they're basically, most of the doors are basically like like the sort of doors you have on big commercial walk-in fridges. Same sort oh, of door. Yeah. But, of yep. course, you're keeping the heat in, not the, you know, you're keeping the cold out, not the heat in. But, yeah, none of the doors lock because that is a safety hazard. Yeah. You go outside, the door locks behind you and you're... Oh, of course. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's a terrible way to go, I guess. Oh, bloody <laughs> now, speaking of terrible things, let's move on. A Freedom of Information document has revealed that the tax office has plans to target 1.8 million taxpayers, including older and low-income Australians. The Australian Tax Office is preparing to expand its controversial scheme that resurrects decades-old debts, decades-old Debts in its pursuit of more than $15 billion. Despite a rising number of complaints, transparency concerns, and at least one systems error resulting in miscalculations. Internal ATO documents show that the program was designed to ramp up this year to eventually capture up to 1.8 million entities, largely consisting of individuals. Now, I just want to caveat this a little bit so this makes a little bit more sense. But when they say 1.8 million taxpayers, those include small businesses, companies, and individuals. So it's not necessarily 1.8 million people, some a lot of them are people, individuals. However, not all of them are. Okay. <clears throat> it's been dubbed RoboTax. Ugh, that sends shivers down my spine. And the oh, initial. I mean, were they even thinking on that one? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if it was coined by them. That's actually not. Not oh, made clear, okay. but the initiative has drawn a comparison to the flawed robo debt compliance program for the 
the uh, Centrelink and has relied on automated processes much the same. It has been described as brutal by the taxpayers, including those who say they do not know how the debts were incurred and no longer have the documentation required to challenge them. The old debts are described as on hold marked to be scrapped from tax refunds. But the surge in AATO activity stems from a policy change to adjust parameters on its automated systems that have previously ignored old debts deemed uneconomical to pursue, some of which are more than two decades old. If you came at me with a 20-year-old debt, I'd tell you to get stuffed. Are you kidding me? Yep. The amounts are often linked to old business state activity statements, GST payments, PYAG installments, and non-lodgement fines applied to those living overseas, with many of the debts unknowingly accrued and invisible to the taxpayers for years. Woohoo, and the, the best kind. <laughs> <laughs> Invisible debts. The ATO has consistently said that it had no option under law to cancel the debts following advice that it found an apparent flaw in its policies. A spokesman for the ATO has said that the ATO has no discretion under law to write off to write these amounts off, even though some of them might be quite aged and must offset any future refunds against these amounts, no matter how small, exempt in limited circumstances. The exemptions had previously filtered out debts that were very old, really small, or if the taxpayer was aged over to 70 years old or earned less than $50,000 in taxable income. And while tens of thousands of Australians have started having their old debts paid from their tax refunds, the number of people affected is set to escalate. As I said, up to 1.8 million ATO quote-unquote clients, which refers mostly to individuals, but also, as I said, includes small businesses and other entities that collectively owe $15 billion on on-hold debts, the documents have shown. And the internal documents show that the ATO has decided against asking the finance minister to seek a waiver for some people, such as oh. low-income earners and older Australians. It defended the blanket approach in correspondence with the government officials by arguing it would be unfair to the other taxpayers to let some off and that it might set a bad precedent. Now, that last bit there, that they're defending the fact that they're not writing off these debts, not that they can because there's no legal precedent for them to do so, but to seek waivers for some people by arguing that it is unfair to other taxpayers to let some people off and that it will would set a bad precedent. I agree with that. I do think, you know, just because you didn't pay your debt 20 years ago doesn't mean it should mm. just be let off now. I believe that. However, I do think that we're talking about 1.8 million clients and $15 billion worth of debt. Hmm. Those numbers don't, those numbers don't gel. There are some, there are some people with, or people, clients, I should say, some entities that have significant debts to the ATO that just aren't paid. And that bothers me. But I also wonder if some of these clients even legally exist anymore. I'm not talking about individuals that may have passed on, but also some of these are probably small business entities that, as they've even said, 
uh, have left the country and now reside overseas. How are you going to claim back from stuff like that? I think this is one of these situations where, just like the robo-debt situation, where it seems good on paper, but in, in practicality, it's not a very effective program. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I'm just, I was just doing that um, uh, calculation. So, yeah, 15 billion divided by 1.8 uh, million, if I've done it correctly, is uh, 8,300 each. So, which isn't, isn't nothing to the average, average punter, but I'm going to, yeah. I would, I no, would say it's an average, right? Some of those are going to be, absolutely massive and some of them are going to be very insignificant especially if you're a, if you're a taxpayer that's moved overseas and you didn't do a lodgement um you know it, it may be very minimal the debt that you're owing it could literally be maybe hundreds or tens of dollars so you know I, i'm thinking there's going to be some of these there will be like a 1% of these 1.8 million that owe tens of thousands or yes. possibly even hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Well, look, I'm, I'm going to have to take the government's side on this one. Ha! Yeah, like hell. <laughs> <laughs> we're, going to see, we're going to see more and more of this, this grasping and squeezing of, of people. I get your point about uh, that, la that last bit where it was talking about, you know, fairness to people who are paying their, their thing. I do, you know, I do understand. I, I do understand that uh, it basically sounds to me like at the heart of it there's uh, – they weren't able to properly do their job get that back, and mm. they moved ahead, and now some, you know, Cedric and the bureaucracy has come up with an idea of how we can go and financially terrorise people from the, the past with debts. I mean, 20 years ago, I mean, if you tell, look, I know, I, I can't remember, it's something like you're, you're obliged to keep things for seven years, and yep. this is not financial advice, people but my rough understanding is you're obliged to keep things for seven years um so i don't think that applies to every single document i know there are no. there are exceptions to to that but your, your general your general accounting thing the type of things that you would put in um your files and say look this is why i made that claim five years ago six years seven years ago once you've gone the past the seven years and Particularly, like the, the bit that really just got my got my got my uh, my hackles up was saying that some of these are going to be invisible debts or unknown to the people. So if you've got like if you've got a debt and you've just moved overseas and you're thinking, oh, okay, look, bugger, they're never going to be able to catch me. I'm never coming back to Australia. That's one thing. But if you've been doing your um, tax as required and not knowing that you're accruing one of these invisible or unknown debts and the ATO comes to you and say, oh, look, by the way, you didn't know it, but you were accruing this debt from 10 years ago. We need your records. And you think, well, shit, I, think I chucked them out. It's over the seven years. 
it's not going to go in your favour. They're going to turn around and they're going to say, well, you know, we've got our records. You've got nothing to, to prove against it. We're going to garnish your refunds. We're going to take it take it from you. So it's just it's it's a real bullying, grasping, desperate type of attitude that comes uh, comes across in this that I, I I just detest. And this thing about well, look, we can't do anything about. It. There's no discretion. Uh, sure, I understand that might be down in the law, but if only there was some organization you were related to that could actually change the law so that you could forgive these debts yeah like bloody government that you're part of i i don't have a problem with the ato not having discretion over forgiving tax debts i actually think that's good i don't want the ato using its discretion to forgive tax debts and i know that sounds maybe a bit conspiratorial but you know oh you know my neighbor might be the head of the ato and maybe uh you know he comes around to my place we have a couple of beers and he forgives my debts you know so i'm not saying obviously that's going to happen uh but there is the potential for something like that happening which is probably why the ato has never been given the purview to forgive debts instead they request an exemption and the minister has to has to do it which so i think that that process uh, that sort of division of power is quite a good idea however the ato themselves very specifically say that you need to keep your personal tax records for between 5 and seven years, depending on the type of document it is. However, there's a big asterisk on that, and that they do say that you need to keep your records long enough to cover you for the period of review. What does that mean? It means you need to keep your records for as long as needed if they decide to (laughs) basically open a case against you. So So how do you bloody know that? Exactly. Especially if the... Uh, the um, if if it was invisible to you, um, like for instance, you know they've, they've sort of had, and it, 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 what frustrates me is this is like common sense type stuff where it's like, you know, you see a you see a taxpayer has permanently moved overseas because there are there are documentation to provide that information to the Department of Immigration or you've rescinded your citizenship, for example, or there are lots of ways to see that because, and this happens every day, you know, there are people that move out of the country and are saying, I'm not coming back for a number of reasons, right? Um, And as a result, they have to declare that to certain government organizations. The ATO is one of those. So if the ATO has a debt for someone that's moved overseas, especially if that debt's incredibly low, like it's $50, what the hell is the point of trying to claim that debt back from them overseas? It's a total waste of time. The ATO is fooling themselves if they're thinking that realistically they're going to be able to claw back this $15 billion. It sounds like a huge amount of money, but when we consider the amount that the ATO generally deals with, is this a good use of ATO resources? In my mind, no, it's absolutely Uh, not. It's not at all. They would probably claim back more than $15 billion if they did more audits on higher income earners. Right. Well, yeah. Look, that's and that's that's uh, one of the things that really irritates me. I, in fact, it was only it was during the week. I can't even remember what podcast it was that I was 
uh, listening to and I heard a thing that was appropriate here. It's easier to get uh, $1 out of a million people than to get a million dollars out of one person. Exactly. And that at the and- heart of it is, is, I, is, is what I find so, uh, so grating about this. That's what's frustrating, especially because they're basically changing their own exemptions that they previously would filter out, such as things that are very old, very small, the taxpayers over 70 years old, because a taxpayer aged over 70 years old generally is no longer working. They're a pensioner. They're on an aged pension. They may not be. Of course, there's exemptions to all of this. But generally speaking, most people are out of the workforce. They're probably not... Uh, receiving a taxable income, so they're not paying any tax, um, they're not receiving any tax return or anything like that. It's just not worth going after these people. I would also imagine that out of these 1.8 million clients, some of these individuals possibly have already, are already deceased. Mm. Like, have they filtered that out? They haven't specifically said so, but especially if you, you know, we're talking about people that are earning less than $50,000 a year. In Australia, I mean, some of our foreign listeners, $50,000 a year may sound like a lot of money, but in Australia, it's not not a lot of money at all. Um, You're basically considered poor if you're on $50,000. So, you know... Just like with the robo-debt situation, the robo-tax is going after the old and the poor, and we're trying to just squeeze them for everything we have instead of really going after the big fish, which is probably where the ATO needs to look a lot better. Um, And $15 billion isn't. It's a drop in the bucket compared to, say, the federal budget for things like this. Like, yes, of course, it's not nothing, but... is this really a good use of, of resources? Is this the guy, the robo-debt guy, got in the year of the Australian tax <laughs> office and peddled his software again? Is that is that what we're doing? Because yeah. robo-debt was so, so successful last time. Uh, <laughs> is this going to end up the same thing where there's a class action lawsuit and all the rest? I, I just This just feels real bad. And it wouldn't surprise me if the ATO walks this back because of the flack that they're getting. Um, mm. that's yet to be seen. We'll we'll have to again watch this space. We may have a follow up to this one. Look, I get it. It's tax information. It's pretty dry. It's not the best listening. But if this doesn't, uh, if the, if this doesn't go ahead and there is a massive change, we'll definitely keep you informed and let you know. Yeah. Yep. Bloody oath. Let's move on to this week in Australian history. I come from a This week in Australian history, we're covering 22nd to 27th of February, but I want to do uh, an update on a history question from last week about uh, gold in Australia and Bathurst. Yes. So, look, what I had said last uh, last week was the earliest recorded discovery of gold in Australia had been made near Bathurst in 1823 by a surveyor, James McBride. But it was not until 1851 that payable gold was discovered um, uh, by Edward Hemmond Hargraves at Ophir, and a rush to the area ensued. And the question was, well, why would they have kept it from the people? Why, why so long, almost uh, 30 years? That's right. Um, yeah. So I did dig a bit better, and uh, 
on the New South Wales government website, uh, which was talking about stories about the, the gold rush, there was a, a paragraph here where I thought, ah, that makes sense. So the ruling elite feared that a predominantly convict population striking at rich would lead to greater crimes or result in a convict rebellion brought on by greed for gold. Gold rush in the bush away from the main population centre could upset the status quo of the ordered convict society. Uh, so Sounds like the look, government's taking all the fun away again. Yeah, it does, and it's sort of like, well, we we keep the keep the people ignorant, so they do what we we want. We can't let them know about where they can get riches aside from us. So, yeah, for people who were listeners who were curious about that, I said I would see if I could try and find out a bit more information, and that to me seems plausible. Um, and it was the only information I could find. So the two of them together, <laughs> that's, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> um, okay, February 22nd in 1791, the first land grant in Australia is made to ex-convict James Roos. He established Experiment Farm. In 1828, Bert Hinkler arrived in Darwin, having flown the first solo flight between England and Australia, and he left uh, England on seventh uh, on seventh of February, fifteen days before, and he so, was born in Bundaberg. And the oh, was he? Yeah, oh, oh yes, yeah. Yep. I think we said this last year. The the um, uh, electoral division is is named after him. That's how I know that because uh, it's Hink- Hinkler, so it's named after the aviator. Right. Yeah. They have a massive. Air show every year. They're big on the aviation, so yeah. air show is good. February twenty third, nineteen eighty seven. The first mobile phone call is made in Australia. Mm. So yeah, we did so, this with the phone. <laughs> we did this a few months ago, or a couple we of weeks did. ago. We yeah. did talking about the big one. So this is a. Uh, did we say who it was between? I didn't think so. No, no, we didn't. Yeah, I don't so that was. So. I remember us talking about those huge bloody bricks. Um, But Australia's first mobile phone system began in Melbourne in August 1981 with the first call made between telecom executives. Um, But at that stage, the system was limited to a $5,000 car phone that weighed 14 kilograms, could store just 16 numbers, (laughs) and alerted owners of an incoming call by honking the horn or flashing its headlights. <laughs> <laughs> but they got um, uh, 13, 1,300 customers in Sydney, Melbourne, used the network in its first year, uh, but coverage wasn't expanded by all capital cities until 1985. But the first handheld mobile call was made at the Sydney Opera House on February, 20, uh, February 23rd, 1987 at 10.42am, as parachutists carrying mobile phones swooped in from overhead, the then Federal Communications Minister Michael Duffy called Telecom Australia Managing Director Mel Ward in an event hosted by ABC's Dr. Carl Kruselnitschke. Um, so, yes, parachuting down, it was all very 
very exciting. Very so theatrical. The, yeah. Very theatrical. That's the word. So the first handheld phones, officially known as bricks, were still big and bulky, as we discussed before. Some had to be carried around in a briefcase and only made voice calls and cost more than 4000 bucks. So, yeah. Uh, 1998, on February 23rd, after generator breakdowns at four major coal-fired power stations, rolling blackouts hit the city of Brisbane and much of southeast Queensland. Yeah. Do you remember that? 98? Yeah, that's, well... Little, you were a little, bit of tucker. A little tucker. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't know. Like... We, have, we, have, we have big storms that knock out the power every now and again, so I probably didn't notice too much of it. Yeah. I was probably, probably watching, the, uh, watching the storms. I, I don't specifically remember this, but. Yeah. Well, yeah. Look at it. Yeah. If you're a that would tucker. be like four major coal fired power mm. stations. That seems almost a bit suspicious. It does. It does seem a bit suspicious. Oh, God. Uh, February 24th, 1875, the SS Gothenburg strikes Old Reef off uh, air. air in Queensland, thank you, and sinks with the loss of 102 lives. 1995, Cyclone Bobby hits Western Australia near uh, Onslow, causing over 400 millimetres, 15 inches of rain in the, the town. So. It's a fair bit of rain for out there. 2003. Sorry, uh, but you can't take it seriously when it's called Cyclone Bobby. I know. I was just thinking that's a friendly little cyclone, isn't it? Oh, here comes Cyclone Bobby. <laughs> He's not going to hurt me. And then he drops 15 inches of rain. <laughs> Holy <Yeah>. moly. Oh. <laughs> I did think that when I was reading that Cyclone Bobby. <laughs> but I, I thought I won't make light because I couldn't remember whether there was a whole lot of deaths or that, but I'm glad you oh, yeah. jumped in. <laughs> Shouldn't yeah. laugh, but, you know. Well, no one died. They just got wet. Uh, 2003, uh, Bendali Debs and Jason Roberts are found guilty of the Silk Miller, Silk Miller police murders and sentenced to life imprisonment. February 25th, 1825. Aboriginal bush ranger Mosquito is hanged, and it's spelt with an M-U. Mosquito is hanged at Hobart, Hobart, Tasmania. You've called Hobart Herbert or Hobart twice this episode. Wow. I wonder wonder what it is that I'm um, missing there at Hobart. 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 Wow. That's funny. Sorry, I just had to point that out. No, no, no. It's it's it's, it's interesting. Some of those um, those ticks and those things that that come up. Uh, always point them out. I always find them interesting. It's good to get that feedback. Just as as an <laughs> aside, nineteen sixty one. The last electric tram service runs in Sydney. Two thousand and one. Cricketer Don Bradman dies in Adelaide, aged ninety two. Ah, another century didn't get. Um, two th- <laughs> 2004, Qantas launches its low-cost domestic airline, Jetstar. Oh, I wish it didn't. It's a horrible airline. Sorry. I, I flew on it last week and it was terrible. <laughs> I had a terrible time. I'm too Look, big for those planes. I'm too tall. I don't well, fit. Yeah, those, those seats are shockers. Um, Look, I've used Jetstar a, a 
occasionally for things. It's not my preference, um, but yeah, those, it's cheap. But you know, yeah, you get what you pay for, and it's cheap, if you're but, yeah. if you're over six foot, do not you can't you don't fit. No, no. February 26th, uh, 1942, a float plane from Japanese submarine I-25 makes a reconnaissance flight over Melbourne and Port Phillip Bay. Um, 1974, remains of Mungo Man discovered at Lake Mungo uh, in New South Wales. A significant find of some old uh, bones. Um, yeah, I think one of the, one of the, one of the oldest ones, certainly up to that point in time. February 27th, uh, 1788, a 17-year-old convict, Thomas Barrett, receives the first, first death sentence in the colony. Oh, 17. Do you know what he did? Did he, did he kill someone or something? No, they don't have a link to what he actually, um... What actually did? So probably probably looked at a superior askance. <laughs> I'll, I'll, while you continue, I'll, I'll look it up and see if I can find okay, out. Okay, so, yeah, see if you can get. Yeah. So we've got we got two more left. Uh, February twenty oh, first, February twenty seventh to finish this off. So nineteen oh two, drover, poet, and soldier Harry Breaker Morant is uh, Harry Breaker Harbord Morant is executed. By firing squad at Petersburg, the film Breaker Morant. Enjoyed that film as much as you can enjoy something about something so awful. Um, mm. And 1994, finishing off this week in Australian history, Australian Federal Sports and Environment Minister Ros Kelly resigns over the sports rorts affair where it was alleged she apportioned money for community sporting projects in a pork-barrelling fashion. You said 1994. I would have thought that was two years ago. <laughs> it seems like history does repeat itself because we have very recently in Australian <laughs> political history had a very, well, the exact same situation, also called sports rorts. Uh, yes. With community sporting projects being done in a pork barreling fashion so history repeats <laughs> time is a flat circle <laughs> and certainly now that rounds out this week in australian history how now you feeling I f- dk i do need a beer but i found out what happened to thomas barrett oh, so okay he within a month of disembarking at port jackson he, uh he got in trouble with the law he and three other convicts were tried and found guilty of the organized theft of rations from the stores. Now, conditions in the new colony were really harsh and food was very scarce. And the governor, Arthur Phillip, notoriously lovely gentleman, uh, had previously warned the convicts that stealing food would be punished by death. And Barrett and his two co-conspirators were sentenced to execution. The other two were subsequently reprieved, but Barrett was hanged on the 27th of February, 1788, becoming the first person to be executed in the new colony. And his body was left to hang for an hour. And the area became known as Hangman's Hill in what is now known as the Rocks. There you go. I used to go to the Rocks a lot. There's a few few good bars around there. Um, There you go. Didn't know it was 
Uh, oh, I did not, didn't either. Anyway, speaking of beer and drinking beer, let's uh, <laughs> let's move on to the forex bottle top question. Now, as has become tradition, we have two questions this week. But this week, there is a theme. It is all about the leap day, the leap year. Uh, a little bit of history. The, uh, it takes the Earth about 365.242189 days. <laughs> or 365 days, 5 hours, 48 minutes, and 45 seconds to do a full orbit around the sun. However, the Gregorian calendar, the one we use here in Australia, rely, and that we rely on every day, of course, very famously only has 365 days. So if we didn't actually add an extra day to our, to a month, any month, uh, we would lose about s- almost six hours a year. Uh, and over a century, our calendar would be off by 24 days. Uh, so, yeah, that's not good. So the question is, in the interest of keeping the calendar on track... At what interval do we add a leap year? I know that one's four days. Or a, oh, or a leap, days, <laughs> leap day, sorry. Yes. Yeah. Four years. Every four that, years. Well, yes, but no. That was a trick question. Oh, oh, hang on. You're going to throw me there. It's, it's every four years, but then we, ah, oh, damn it. We do something special. At some bizarre interval, which I think we did in uh, 2000, which I yes. don't know the answer no, to. What, you, what is it? You're, you're so close. It's not funny. So if we add an extra day every four years, that's actually too much of a correction. Ah. Uh, and as a result, there's actually a leap year for every year that is divisible by four. But to qualify century years, those, of course, that end in zero, zero, must also be divisible by 400. So the year 2000 was a leap year, but the years 1700, 1800, and 1900 were not. So you're right. There was some funny business with the year 2000, and that's why. So this kind of keeps it in sync. Now. Huh, that's interesting. This next question, I, I'll be incredibly surprised if you can get. This is very, very difficult, and I'm sorry to do this to you, but <laughs> do you know who officially created the leap year system? Oh. Or who, I should say, because some, you know, bloody bureaucrat probably did it, but who yeah. took credit for it? Who was the leader of at the time that took credit for it and instilled it into their country or empire oh. or... Okay, I have a feeling it was uh, one of the Roman emperors. You're you're Um, very hot. I don't... uh, Was Pope... Because we've got a Gregorian calendar, but that's that's from Pope Gregory, but I don't, don't think they were... Emperors at that stage, um, or I am going to have a bit of a guess and say it was Augustus Caesar. 
You were so close. You were so close. It was Julius Caesar. Oh. I know that's you don't want to oh, say it because Julius you're like right. That's it. You don't want to say Julius because everyone says that, right? That's the only one everyone knows. Um, he introduced the first leap year in about 46 BC, uh, BCE, sorry. Uh, but his Julian calendar only had one rule, and that was that any year divisible by four would be a leap year. And this created too many leaps, as we learned from before. The math wasn't tweaked until Pope Gregory introduced his Gregorian calendar 1,500 years later. So, 1,500, okay. I feel like you get a point for that because you were so, so close with both a Roman emperor and Pope Gregory. So, there you go. I'll ta- look, I'll take, I'll take a half point. <laughs> someone someone somewhere is keeping score on these and if you are that person please reach out and get in touch with us because we absolutely do not and i'd love to know how we go on these but um these were pretty difficult i mean the first one was really a trick question if i'm honest um and the second one i'm i'm incredibly impressed that you got so close uh you got half of it right um but there you go. A little bit of leap year uh, trivia because, quite frankly, we haven't had one and four years. It's a it's a long time before we come back round again uh, to to do the leap year questions. So, well, yeah, and I hope we I hope we're joining people in another four years. So, in another four years, I'll ask you these exact same questions, and yeah. you'll have forgotten by then. So, <laughs> I, I probably will know in me. so on that thank you so much for joining us for another australia talks the official podcast of the r slash australian subreddit if you have any feedback or suggestions for topics please get in touch with us on the r slash australian subreddit or email us at australian subreddit at proton.me we'd also be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as this helps us out immensely otherwise join us next week for another episode of australia talks and remember at our australian we are australian thanks for listening and tell your mama lover see you dk see ya